What I've been trying to understand in this series of lectures is why it is that some of the world's most developed and experienced democracies are in a state of serious political dysfunction. In the United States, in the United Kingdom, and in varying degrees across Western Europe, it's difficult to secure democratic agreement on basic ideas like citizenship and justice and rights and entitlements because there's no open, broadly shared civil discussion of those questions. Everywhere, majorities are thin, and yet the leading parties are polarized, so that decisions in, uh, in the United States on health care or uh, European uh, relations in the United Kingdom or immigration policy in France or Germany seems susceptible to radical change after small shifts in an electorate that has barely changed at all. Political speech today serves largely to rally those who are already strongly committed to a position, while persuasion and even open discussion is increasingly rare. Now, there are lots of reasons for those problems, but what I've been arguing is that they begin after the Protestant Reformation, when European political thinkers tried to resolve a century of religious warfare by formulating a new understanding of political choice and action in which disputed questions about human nature and human good and human destiny didn't need to be discussed. The century of Machiavelli and Hobbes found the questions of ethics dangerous to ask and impossible to answer. And another century of work by Locke and Hume and Bentham made public arguments about those questions unnecessary. This was a very particular response to peculiar conditions in Europe at an important historical transition point. But it gave us, eventually, the modern separation of church and state, the foundational ideas of liberal politics, and Western ideas about freedom and individual rights that now have a global reach. So this limitation of discussion of deep moral divisions in public, which we may see today as a problem, started as the solution to uh, a much more serious uh, conflict within European society. But that separation of ethics from politics contrasts sharply with an older and more widespread way of thinking that sees politics and the human good as inextricably related to one another. As Aristotle understood politics, it is just the way that people attempt to answer their ethical questions in large groups at the level of a whole society. And seen from this wider angle of vision, the questions that early modern Europeans found dangerous and impossible to answer are a necessary part of politics. Seen from this angle of vision, in fact, ethics is not impossible, but inevitable. So what I've been asking in various ways 
is whether we're reaching the limits of the modern separation of ethics from politics and power from knowledge, just at a point where the liberal democracies built on that separation have established themselves as the model for politics on a global scale. It wouldn't be unique in human experience that a way of doing things should reach its limits precisely at its moment of greatest success. And it wouldn't mean that we need to abandon the ideals of individual freedom and political consent that have been basic to the philosophy of liberal democracy. But it may mean that we will have to open our political discourse to something more than a thin theory of the good on which everyone already agrees. Citizens constrained by those limits on public discourse will continue to talk about their deepest beliefs and their most cherished values, but they do it only with those who already agree with them. And the result is that the philosophy that was meant to ensure peace has led over the long run to polarization. Reconnecting our politics with that older Aristotelian political ethics is a complex task, and not everyone is sure even now that it's a good idea. The modern theorists of political liberalism are skeptical, but their reluctance is countered by sociologists who doubt that a public discourse isolated from religious and moral arguments is even possible. Theologians from the time of Augustine forward have recognized political responsibility as a religious calling, but they've always been answered by other theologians who insist that the church itself is the ideal cause and must protect the integrity of its own answers from the confusion of the public square. So the question today becomes not only how we might renew the public discussion of human goods, but whether anyone will even be interested in doing it. For this lecture, then, I will sketch a sociological account of political responsibility, identify a theology that takes upon itself the risks of that kind of responsibility, and then suggest why, in the present context of political dysfunction, those who adhere to that kind of theology who are willing to accept political responsibility as part of their theological vocation, might want in particular to risk reconnecting their theology to the sort of Aristotelian politics I described in the first of these lectures. So, politics as a vocation, centering on the ethics of responsibility advanced by Dietrich Bonhoeffer and Reinhold Lieber, but beginning with an imaginary conversation between Max Weber, John Rawls, and Martin Luther. You may also want to imagine Karl Barth, Alistair McIntyre, and Stanley Hauerwas sitting on the edges of the conversation, wearing expressions indicating varying degrees of disapproval. Weber. Max Weber provides us with a different vision of the relationship between ethics and politics from modern liberal uh, theories. Beginning with his pioneering study of the Protestant ethics and the spirit, uh, spirit, Protestant ethics and spirit of capitalism published in 1905 and continuing until his death in 1920, 
Weber authored a monumental series of works on the social and economic impact of the world's religions. He knew too much about the power of religious ideas to suppose that they could be kept out of political discourse. And he was no apologist for the kind of liberal parliamentary democracy that many of his contemporaries hoped to introduce into Germany at his time. So his first solution to the problem of religious peace and civic order was to give the state, as he famously phrased it, a monopoly on the use of force and hope that a strong, rational, and bureaucratic government could maintain order so that intellectual arguments about the good could continue without too much impact on the actual course of events. The German parliament that came into being with the German Empire in 1870 perhaps exemplified that separation of ideas from real power. But Weber lived long enough to see the breakdown of the imperial system at the end of the First World War and the failure of German ambitions moved his thinking in a more democratic direction. He understood that in the aftermath of military defeat, political factions would undertake a reallocation of the powers of government according to their Christian or Marxist or imperialist or liberal commitments. His solution, therefore, was not to restrict politics based on those kinds of commitments, but to challenge the politicians to recognize the limits of their knowledge and their inability to foresee the consequences of their convictions. The result was his famous lecture on politics as a vocation, delivered in Munich at the beginning of 1919 in the midst of revolutionary upheavals that would culminate in the Weimar Republic. In this lecture, Weber contrasts an ethic of conviction with an ethic of responsibility. While many people, especially those with a Protestant sense duty believe that an uncompromising commitment to do the right thing is the only guide to action, Weber argues that the task of the politician is to temper commitment with a sense of one's own limitations and an awareness of the consequences of action. Acting on conviction, says Weber, is appropriate for a saint because a saint as he puts it, does rightly and leaves the results to the Lord. <clears throat> but the politicians' choices are different. In politics, every choice is also a contestation over power to make future choices. And consequences fall heavily not only on the one who makes the choice, but on others for whom or to whom the political leader is responsible. In politics, failure to compromise may not only deprive you of what might otherwise be at least a partial victory, a definitive loss may actually deprive you of future influence altogether. Check with the Republican leadership in Congress if you have any doubt that real politicians worry about such things. And while it may be appropriate for a saint to turn the other cheek and sacrifice his cloak to someone who's taken his coat, it's quite another matter to offer someone else's cloak as a sacrifice, as Reinhold Niebuhr would later remind us. 
So the ethics of conviction has the problem that it disregards consequences because it anticipates a transformation that renders present gains and losses irrelevant. And politics is just not like that. In Politics as a Vocation, Weber uses the millenarian religious leaders of the Radical Reformation as characteristic examples of the ethics of conviction. But there seems little doubt that he was also thinking, and perhaps primarily thinking, of his political contemporaries, the Marxists, the unshaken nationalists, who were prepared, prepared to risk everything to create a new order that was built more on vision than on experience. Talking about the Radical Reformation gave Weber a way to defuse the tension surrounding German politics in 1919, while at the same time it suggested that conviction belongs to the realm of faith rather than politics. The saint or the revolutionary sees the coming kingdom and ignores the cost of getting there. The politician is a this-worldly realist who sees no further than the consequences of present choices and actions. To say that the ethics of responsibility is concerned with consequences, then is not to say that the end justifies the means. That, that would have to be rather more like the ethics of conviction. Responsibility rather requires scrutiny of both the means and the end, and the ends must be limited by the knowledge and competence of those who propose them. We can reach with our political solutions no further than our own knowledge and experience can take us. This still leaves room for a responsible political leader with considerable scope for transformative vision. And for what Weber classically described as a charismatic political authority. Political responsibility is different from the vocation of the scientist, which Weber outlined in another lecture about the same time. The scientist provides value-free analysis constrained by the rules of scientific method rather than the flexible requirements of ordinary discourse. Ordinary discourse Ordinary political discourse freely mixes speculation and evidence and commitment. And Weber doesn't see uh, methodological constraints as the key to political solutions in an unsettled time uh, like the one through which he was living. He understands that methodological rigor is hard to come by in a time of political crisis. So if Max Weber and John Rawls could discuss the requirements of politics, we might imagine that the sociologist would tell the political philosopher that his rules of public reason resemble too much the methodological constraints of the scientist and omit the measure of charismatic appeal and moral aspiration that is essential to politics. The liberal theorist, carefully trimming his arguments to the requirements of public reason, may be comprehensible to everyone but that doesn't mean he'll be persuasive. It may not matter much whether your case depends on argument or passion. If the only people listening to you are, in the end, those who already agreed with you at the beginning. Weber understands 
the political argument is a risky business in which effective leaders must follow their convictions, but only up to the limits that, of the results that they can see. Given the opportunity, Martin Luther might have agreed with Weber on this. Luther intuitively grasped the idea of territorial rulers with a monopoly on legitimate use of force. And his condemnation of Thomas Munzer's ethics of conviction would have been expressed in terms that would probably shock a polite sort of scientist. What Luther would not perhaps have understood was what Weber meant by vocation. For Weber, politics, politics as a vocation, is a job. You get up in the morning and you go to Parliament just like the scientist gets up in the morning and goes to the lab or the library. But when Luther speaks of vocation, it is a calling. It is your place in the order of things ordained by God. And so it includes not only your work, but your relationship to family and government and to church. And it's not as if some people have a vocation and others do not, even though some of them may not know that they have it. So politics is a vocation, not just a job, and Luther would have been wondering what in the world Weber could mean by this. Exactly what politics is a vocation means in relation to the order of government was not a question that Luther could have understood in the way that we would. He might have recognized princes as having responsibilities, something like the vocation that Weber assigned to the politician, but the political vocation that other people had in Luther's time was simply to obey. But here's what Luther might say if given long enough to think about it. Be careful how you think about this vocation of politics. For if at the beginning of the 20th century you define politics so that it centers on responsibility, just as the politics of 1517 or 1523 centered on obedience, then just because a vocation is what it is, you will have arrived by defining uh, vocation in terms of responsibility you will have, have arrived at a society in which everyone is called to political responsibility. As I say, that's what Luther might say if you let him think about it long enough. Indeed, if you let Luther think about it long enough, you might get Dietrich Bonhoeffer, whose political ideas were honed by the experience of Hitler's rise to power and by life in a politically active and well-connected family, he found himself during the war years drawn into active resistance to the Nazi regime. Clifford Green uh, talks about Bonhoeffer's ethics as the only book we have by a Lutheran theologian who was actively involved in a conspiracy against his own government. Bonhoeffer makes extensive use of the idea of responsibility 
in his ethics. And although I haven't found any direct evidence that he had read politics as a vocation, the ideas that Weber works with were very much a part of the intellectual climate in which uh, Bonhoeffer wrote his uh, early theological work, including his dissertation on the theology of the church. What is clear is that at the same time he entered into the uh, resistance, Bonhoeffer began to write an ethics that centered on what he called the free venture of responsibility. There's much in this text that reflects the difficulty of his times, including the idea that responsible action always involves the risk of guilt. But I think there's also in Bonhoeffer's ethics a new appreciation for what he calls civil courage. And after the rigidities of ideological politics in the Nazi era and after the resistance of the confessing church, there's an almost exuberant rediscovery in Bonhoeffer's ethics of what he calls genuine Western politics, which is full of compromises and a really free responsibility. In this way, Bonhoeffer's ethics echoes Weber's account of the responsible politician who eschews ultimate claims about revolutionary transformation in favor of proximate outcomes that can be predicted, assessed, and amended if necessary, but which involve, as Bonhoeffer's political activity did, real risks in that free venture of responsibility. Niebuhr arrived at similar ideas about politics as a vocation in the very different American context that he lived in. His first major work, Moral Man and Immoral Society, indeed challenges the limited expectations of political liberalism and endorses a kind of hope for radical political transformation. At the same time, he acknowledges that revolutionary aspirations are an illusion and that they can encourage terrible fanaticisms. So the illusion of perfect justice, Niebuhr says, must therefore be brought under the control of reason. He adds, one can only hope that reason will not destroy it before its work is done. Niebuhr at that point edges very far toward what Weber might talk about as an ethics of conviction. But by 1937, Niebuhr was a participant in the Oxford Conference on Church, Community, and State, which emphasized the idea of responsibility governing the relations between church and state and political relations in society generally. Now, here, as with uh, Bonhoeffer, it's a little difficult to draw any direct connection between the use of responsibility in the Oxford Conference and Weber's uh, idea of political responsibility. But I think regardless of direct influence, the claim I want to make is that Weber's idea of political responsibility provides us with the interpretive tool we need to understand what was meant by responsibility as it was widely used uh, throughout the 1930s and 1940s 
in Christian theology. So Niebuhr joined the effort to find responsible solutions to a variety of social problems that could be implemented within existing political structures. That realism would be the hallmark of his post-war writings, accompanied by an awareness of the irony of history, which always undoes our political achievements with unanticipated consequences and prevents the final accomplishment of any comprehensive moral vision. Indeed, the transformation of Weber's Puritan righteousness into the shrewdness of the Yankee trader is one of Niebuhr's favorite examples of the irony of American history. So Weberian politics thus elicited a new theology and ethics of responsibility, different from both liberal individualism and from revolutionary politics, both of which were very much on offer in the political atmosphere at the time. Responsibility located itself squarely within the choices that could be made under existing conditions and tested by the results in practice. The reconstruction of politics happens within history for uh, the politics of responsibility. The questions of politics are penultimate, to put it in Bonhoeffer's terms, and history's irony has the last word on any of our solutions. For Niebuhr, for Bonhoeffer, and for other theologians who shared this approach, politics is a vocation in the religious sense that Luther might recognize. It's part of the life of faith shared by all believers and not restricted to those who hold a role in government or a position of power in public life. The risk of guilt involved in these public choices and the risk to identity involved in engaging with others around penultimate concerns are an integral part of the life of faith. That seems to me to be the conclusion to which we're led as we, we see how these ideas of political responsibility that begin with Weber's politics as a vocation lecture get adapted and adopted by especially Protestant theologians in the decades that follow. Now it is just at this point that we should cast a glance in the direction of Bart, McIntyre, and Hauerwas, who will by now be muttering among themselves on the sidelines. What they have in common is the conviction that the ethics of responsibility gives up too much in order to participate in this general discussion of human goods and acquire the virtues that make politics possible. Nor are these three familiar critics the only ones. Niebuhr's, Niebuhr's Christian realism enjoyed a wide following among political leaders in the post-war years, even among those who called themselves atheists for Niebuhr. But it's worth remembering that John Rawls's magisterial theory of political liberalism with its thin theory of the good and its distinction between comprehensive doctrines which might be held by a community of faith and the logical underpinnings that are necessary to undergird a theory of justice, that political philosophy, which appeared the same year that Niebuhr died, 
was designed in part to tidy up just such intrusions of religious ideas into the public. Rawls might find Christian realism too theological then to provide a starting point for public discussion. Bart, in turn, might find the same language too assimilated to political discourse to convey theological truth. McIntyre and Hauerwas would put the same point more sharply. Once the shared language of goods and virtues has been lost, they might say, there is no hope of recreating it by public discussion. The attempt to do so not only risks the loss of Christian identity, which has to be maintained in communities of formation that emphasize distinctive values, success at creating a shared political discourse is therefore probably evidence in itself that what, has, what is essential to Christianity has already been given up in the process of creating the discourse. That's an indictment that these theological critics would apply to Niebuhr, and they would apply it equally to Bonhoeffer, at least to Bonhoeffer, as I have interpreted him, uh, the Theologians among you will know that there's a more party of Bonhoeffer available if that serves your purposes better. Uh, but the risk and responsibility that Bonhoeffer accepted on behalf of the German resistance, it seems to me, correspond very closely to Weber's idea of political responsibility. At the same time, the challenges that Bonhoeffer faced were obviously different from those that Niebuhr faced in, in his qualified endorsement of Western democracy, which he could make in public and in print in his time. And the risks that we today run are different, again, from both Bonhoeffer and Niebuhr. So, uh, i I, I turn back to those uh, critics muttering on the sidelines to suggest that what we require is a more differentiated notion of political responsibility which responds to different political challenges. Bonhoeffer's political responsibility was not the same as Niebuhr's, and neither one of those was exactly the same as the one that is our vocation today. We face the problem of a public life without compelling choices. We don't lack for political convictions, but there are so many political convictions and none of them seems capable of setting a workable direction for policy or for building a consensus. whether set in motion on the left or on the right by Bernie Sanders or the Freedom Caucus, every wave of the future seems to stall out at about 24%, leaving the majority of people confused and uncertain and unable to share their convictions, but also dissatisfied with the familiar coalitions of disparate movement of a small percentage of voters, as I said at the beginning, in the right place, especially in the American electoral college system, movement of a small percentage of voters in the right place 
produces big changes at the top and promises about a new future. But the other side is already counting the days until the next election. In the meantime, partisan gridlock itself ensures that any changes will be small and may be quickly reversed. There remains a non-negligible risk that these problems will eventually give rise to a demagogue who will seize power and install some sort of authoritarian regime. This, this seems to have been the favorite political speculation in the United States since about January 21st. But the incompetence of the demagogues and the cynicism of the electorate makes that outcome, I think, unlikely in the older developed democracies. What lends urgency to the task of ruling our politics is that that slight chance of authoritarianism probably increases the longer the political dysfunction continues. So what is our political vocation? Under these circumstances, politics as a vocation may mean a calling not so much to side with one or another of the competing political forces, but to renew the conditions for public discourse as a necessary prelude to new policies that could set directions and develop a new consensus. It's hard today to imagine a concept that would give direction to political life in the way that Theodore Roosevelt's progressivism or Woodrow Wilson's New Freedom or Franklin Roosevelt's New Deal once did. The tendency of later efforts has been to sputter out and be reduced to slogans. Think about the new frontier and the great society and compassionate conservatism. These may have been indicators of a political culture that was already losing the vocabulary that could sustain a compelling idea of human good, or they may have been just bad luck. Uh, people who, who uh, took power at the time that insurmountable political and international problems uh, overwhelmed them. In any case, those for whom politics as a vocation will need now to rethink how political ideas and commitments are generated and commit themselves to a renewal of that process. That's a necessary prelude to coming up with a program that could guide our political future. This will not be accomplished without elected and appointed officials for whom politics is their daily work as well as their vocation. But we can't rely on the professional politicians exclusively to do this, first because they will be preoccupied with the actual work of government, which at the moment is pretty difficult, and then also because those who have mastered a dysfunctional system are unlikely to feel the urgency of changing it. Even dysfunctional systems work for somebody or they would cease to exist. So let me conclude by naming three ventures of responsibility that it might be our vocation to undertake in order to bring about this broader renewal of public life and public discourse. One is the cultivation of political virtues that I highlighted in the second of these lectures back in December. 
I focused then on the three virtues of humility, responsibility, and dignity. But the broader point I was trying to make was that political virtues are not simply admirable traits that we wish more people in public life would possess. They are political virtues precisely because they are habits of mind that dispose us to make good political choices. There's a kind of virtuous circle between the, the practices that bring the virtues about and the results uh, that you're, you're seeking in good uh, political life. Having the virtues makes a good person, and without good people, as Aristotle explains, we will not have the human goods that depend on good choices. And as I argued at the time, we can actually figure out what some of these political virtues are by a kind of reverse engineering. Uh, some of you will remember this lecture in which we look at the excesses and the defects of contemporary political life in order to find that Aristotelian midpoint that represents the virtue. I won't go further into humility, dignity, and responsibility right now, except to say that the terms by themselves point to some things that our politics is missing, and the situation has not notably improved since I gave that lecture on December 8th. So those for whom politics is a vocation need to do more than just model virtues and praise them. They need to become adept at the analysis that draws the connection between effective political action and these political virtues. Uh, they need to extend that analysis to other political virtues. They need to point to those virtues both where they exist and where they are missing. Polarization encourages bad behavior, especially when accompanied by access to social media. What we need is a more nuanced account of good behavior so that political virtues become a measure of political competence rather than just a moralistic way of congratulating someone for being better people than their opponents are. So first, then, a cultivation of political virtues. Another essential venture involves loosening the constraint on public discourse, reopening the public square. So that people bring into public discussion all of the religious and familial and traditional and personal ideas about the human good that really shape their aspirations, rather than trying to recast them in terms of a neutral public reason with which everyone only agrees. Some of these ideas will meet with objections and rejections, of course, and others will be simply incomprehensible to those who don't share the faith or the experience behind them. But as long as the purpose is persuasion rather than coercion, then as Nicholas Waldersdorf observes, there's no reason why people should not be allowed to make any arguments that they think will be convincing based on whatever premises they choose to deploy. So much has been said about the limitations of public reason that I'll not spend more time making that case here, except to commend to you the work of Michael Sandel and William Galston on why the boundaries of public reason are difficult to determine and difficult to force. 
And to repeat Waldersdorf's point, that there's nothing inherently dangerous about moral and religious ideas when they are presented honestly for purposes of persuasion. There are risks, of course. Memories of persecution and discrimination are durable. And if you seek to be persuasive with ideas that have associations with discrimination and persecution, you'll need to overcome those suspicions before your case can be heard. For those who bring deeply held theological convictions into the public conversation, there's also the risk that these convictions will be sacrificed, perhaps unwittingly, to a penultimate political point. But there's also the possibility that the believer will understand her creed better by trying to figure out what it might mean to someone who doesn't share it fully, and that the theologian will sharpen her skills by exercising moral apologetics as well as unfair matters. The major obstacle in this direct and discursive path to renewal of public life is not moreover the one that glories McIntyre and Hauerwas so much, that risk of compromising the truth of faith in public discourse. They think that religious and moral ideas only have meaning in communities that maintain them inform their members in the use of them. But the more important problem, I think, is a postmodern conviction that all arguments have meaning only as an exercise of power. So that the difference between persuasion and coercion becomes vanishingly small. In this context, arguments about the good cannot be just words if we are going to be persuasive in public discourse, we have to embody our ideas of the good in virtues, as I have suggested. And here's the most important point. We have to give them substance and permanence in the life of institutions. The arguments we make for the good are made best by creating and maintaining the institutions that make those goods available to us. And it's that last point that I will dwell on for a minute, to suggest that the renewal of our public life depends on those places, those institutions where politics happens beyond the familiar Weberian politics of government. I'm thinking here about thousands of groups and communities and corporations large and small, for-profit and non-profit, voluntary, educational, therapeutic, cultural, and religious, where most of us spend most of our waking lives and our working years, and where we make whatever contributions we do make to the common good. These uh, are, if, if politics is our vocation, it's what happens in those places as much as what happens in what we usually think of as politics. These intermediary institutions tend, however, to disappear from political thinking that divides things too deeply in public society. And as a result, we're confused about how these settings relate to what we usually call politics. Most of the time, we see what goes on there in our workplaces and our social organizations as a mini version of the kind of politics that happens in legislatures and government departments. So we joke about 
office politics and academic politics and uh, neighborhood politics, church politics. But the irony is that this politics is closer often to the Aristotelian use of the word than the work of professional politicians. Because it is in our offices, our academic departments, our congregations and clubs and neighborhoods that we argue with each other about the best way to achieve the goals that are really important to us. We deliberate about the means, to put it in Aristotle's terms, and in the process, we educate ourselves to understand and desire the ends. That's how virtues come about in, a, in an Aristotelian politics. Every social institution sustains goods and virtues that are integral to its continued existence and good function. An academic institution, for example, develops through practices of open inquiry that result in good teaching and good scholarship. A religious institution builds mutual commitment through worship and it tests its teachings and practices in relations to its text and its durable tradition. A museum or a library understands its holdings as a public trust across generations. And that understanding has concrete implications for its operations and policies. Even a for-profit corporation that measures its successes and failures by the market has, if it lasts over time, a set of values that it tries to uphold in the workplace, a set of virtues that it expects from its employees, and a quite specific understanding of the goods that it offers its customers that can't be measured by price alone. Most of these institutions also subscribe to a code of ethics that presents these key ideas in terms that apply not just locally, but across other institutions of the same sort. Organized health care, with its in, uh, commitment to the Hippocratic Oath, traces its origins far back in history, but it's, that's only the first of many such institutionalized moral vocabularies. So we ask, where do we find a public moral <coughs> vocabulary with people trying to... to identify and, and seek human goods, we find them in all of these institutions that make up the wider life of our society. Some of these organizations come into being as instruments of individual purposes. But those that endure over time have goals that make claims about the human good. Institutions that teach us artistry, knowledge, health, tradition, and hope uh, the, the institutions teach us that those things are worth having. They do not merely offer a means to things that people already want. They instruct us on what we must do to obtain goods that are worth having. They teach us how to discriminate between better and worse forms of those goods. And they enlist us in the pursuit of the best, even when that pursuit is difficult and not in accord with our initial inclination. An institution that flourishes over time has to form people in the virtues that are necessary to create and maintain the distinctive goods that it takes responsibility for. The well-being of the institution is dependent on these virtues, but people have the virtues 
because the institution is organized realistically. Organizing and sustaining a flourishing institution is thus a political activity in the original Aristotelian sense of politics. While the moral vocabulary available for the politics of government may have shrunk, we are in fact surrounded by moral vocabularies and they are essential to our lives, to our livelihood, and to our identity. For most of us, what we do to build those institutions is the most important political activity we undertake. There's a connection, however, between this internal political life of institutions, institutions and the politics of government. For in addition to the concerts and degree programs and research services and therapeutic interventions and spiritual exercises that good institutions contribute to society, they provide that vocabulary of human goods that goes beyond the rights and duties of a political contract and the methods of the market. A good school, a good hospital, even a good bakery flourishes because it persuades individuals to order their lives by the virtues that its distinctive goods require. Those virtues may be the care and attention to detail that form the vocation of a nurse or a teacher. They may be virtues of thrift or taste expressed in momentary commercial transactions. But these vocations and transactions taken together provide a political vocabulary that makes claims not just on the people involved in the institutions, but on the whole society. A society in which imagination and creativity are valued characteristics needs institutions of art and literature that elicit those virtues. A modern society requires scientific knowledge and technical skill, and it has to build institutions that instill those disciplines and pass them on in new forms through generation to generation. All societies need wisdom to see the possibilities of human life and to bear its limitations. And the politics of government ultimately rests on ideas of justice and restraint that strike a balance between these competing claims and allow each institution the space to serve its own purposes. We could reduce this Aristotelian vocabulary of knowledge, wisdom, imagination, and justice to market terms. We could say that the institutions supply these different goods and they're in competition for scarce resources from which to manufacture them. But that doesn't quite grasp the political problem. The decisions a society must make about how to balance different goods and about what combination of them is required for the well-being of the institutions that make good lives possible are, are the most basic political decisions we have. The answer to a, a question about the most efficient allocation of resources doesn't answer that political question. So if we miss the connection between ethics and politics, we may find that economic efficiency provides the only available political vocabulary. When that happens, people start to lose confidence in the moral vocabulary of their institutions, and they start to imitate the pseudo-political language of efficiency and security. 
education, art, and knowledge become important because they contribute to productivity. Hospitals, libraries, and universities explain themselves in terms of return on investment. And the dysfunctional politics of government thus tends to invade the political discourse of the other institutions in society. The challenge, the political vocation of the moment, is to reverse that movement and reintroduce Aristotelian politics into the political discourse of government. So we return at length to what I've called in previous lectures the inevitability of ethics and to the necessity of that kind of politics that explores the questions of ethics at the level of the whole society. That seems to me, creating the possibility of that kind of public discourse seems to me to be politics as a vocation for people in our society today. There's one further question that I want to mention before I conclude, and, and will be the subject of my last lecture on May 2nd. The major risk that Weber identified to in our commitments to the human good has been that we tend to project those commitments too far into the future. That's, that's what happens with the ethics of conviction. You, you, your commitment to a, a good goal outruns your understanding of the consequences of that commitment. So we project our goods too far into the future. That was the point of Weber's ethics of responsibility and the point of Niebuhr's studies of the irony of history. But the question that has begun to emerge in our time is whether this responsible politics carries us far enough into the future. As technology expands and as even the natural environment and the biological conditions of life become subject to moral and political evaluation. We, we, we now can ask whether the basic biological conditions of, of human life are, uh, are good things. As, as those kinds of changes in our discourse take place, how will we separate the choices that are ours to make from those that rightly belong to future generations? How will we make commitments that future generations will need to live in this terrestrial environment and perhaps, as our astrobiological discussion suggests, to live even beyond it? Can we anticipate the ironies of history in a way that allows us to undertake projects that may require generations the human being, as Aristotle told us, is a political animal, making choices and building cities on foundations laid in human nature. One way to put the new question about political responsibility is to ask whether this political animal has a future. And that's what I'll turn to next month.